0: The human head is of the same approximate size and weight as a roaster chicken. I have never before had occasion to make the comparison, for never before today have I seen a head in a roasting pan. But here are 40 of them, one per pan, resting face up on what looks to be a small pet food bowl. The heads are for plastic surgeons, two per head, to practice on. I'm observing a facial anatomy and facelift refresher course sponsored by a Southern University Medical Center and led by a half-dozen of America's most sought-after facelifters. The heads have been put in roasting pans, which are of the disposable aluminum variety, for the same reason chickens are put in roasting pans, to catch the drippings. Surgery, even surgery upon the dead, is a tidy, orderly affair. Forty folding utility tables have been draped in lavender plastic cloths, and a roasting pan is centered on each. Skin hooks and retractors are set out with the pleasing precision of restaurant cutlery. The whole thing has the look of a catered reception. I mentioned to the young woman, whose job it was to set up the seminar this morning, that the lavender gives the room a cheery sort of Easter party feeling. Her name is Teresa. She replies that lavender was chosen because it is a soothing color. For the moment, you can't see the faces. They've been draped with white cloths pending the arrival of the surgeons. When you first enter the room, You see only the tops of heads, which are shaved down to stubble. You could be looking at rows of old men reclining in barber chairs with hot towels on their faces. The situation only starts to become dire when you make your way down the rows. Now you see stumps, and the stumps are not covered. They are bloody and rough. I was picturing something cleanly sliced, like the edge of a deli ham. I look at the heads, and then I look at the lavender tablecloths. Horrify me, soothe me, horrify me.
1: Mary Roach, welcome to Fine Print. Thank you, Rick. Mary Roach is a journalist who writes the My Planet column for Reader's Digest and is written for Wired, GQ, Outside, Discover, and Salon.com. None of this prepares the reader for her first book, Stiff: The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers. Mary, tell us how and why you started writing.
0: How and why I started writing? Um, that's easy. I uh, was a typical liberal arts major, with, uh, who graduated with absolutely no marketable or practical skills, and found that uh, writing was something I uh, <clears throat> actually could do, and uh, seemed to be able to make a living at, and so I stuck with it.
1: <laughs> How did you break into journalism?
0: Um, I started out, actually, uh, I had a job at the San Francisco Zoo in the PR office. I worked out of a trailer next to Gorilla World. And uh, writing press releases about elephant laser wart surgery and things like that. And uh, I enjoyed that quite a lot, but uh, the job kind of petered out, and I started doing some uh, writing for the San Francisco Examiner Sunday magazine, just kind of sent a query in one day, thought, let me try this, and it kind of grew from there, uh, kind of random.
1: You're one of the... Top writers in this nation—you're working for those prestigious magazines, Wired and GQ. Oh, outside, stop
0: it. <laughs> well, now,
1: how do you organize all this stuff?
0: Um, right, quite uh, poorly. I, I'm not a terribly what I do is I don't take on too many things at once because I have a low stress threshold. So I uh, I tend to just get have one or two things going at a time. Um, so it's it's pretty simple when you.
1: How do you select or reject your assignments?
0: Um, will, it, will it be fun and interesting, really? Is, uh, and, you know, I mean, it, I have kind of a, a combination of variables that I look at. Um, is it, you know, is the publication yeah, s- prestigious, something that I'd lo- want to work for? And if so, I'm willing to do something for less money. Uh, so it's a combination of the publication, the payment, and the topic. Uh, but mostly the topic.
1: You will write a column for Reader's Digest, which is one of the oldest and most staid publications on the planet.
0: Yeah, go figure. Huh? <laughs> what's it
1: like? <laughs> what's it like being part of such, such an ossified institution?
0: Oh, that's a very good question. The uh, uh, Reader's Digest has uh, is actually trying to change their image. So this, this is why they they called me and a couple of other um, columnists uh, to to do something for them. They're trying to. Appeal to younger readers, uh, so that they um, they went just about as far out on the <laughs> limb as they could go in having me do a column. Obviously, I'm not writing about uh, cadavers for them. I'm, it's a, it's sort of a personal look at uh, my life. I write a lot about my husband Ed, who's kind of a goofball. Uh, so, um, but they are um, they're actually in some ways just like any other magazine. Um, they do have some some interesting uh, editorial. Habits like They they are only comfortable condensing. If you ever write a feature for them, this may have changed recently. I I don't do features for them, but they have a tendency to assign a piece at twice the length that they will run it because they just have this need to condense. (laughs) We are Reader's Digest. We need to condense. It's like, what if I turn it in right at the length you want? No, 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 no. We can't handle that.
1: You're a woman writing in the field of science. How has this impacted your work?
0: I, I used. I, I'm a contributing editor at Discover, and uh, I had used to work with an editor there named Fred Guterl, and we had this running joke where Fred would, you know, if I if I'd be working on a story and I'd get something wrong or there'd be some problem, Fred would just go, "God, you just can't let women cover science." <laughs> <laughs> it was just this ongoing uh, ongoing theme, and I there and I really I'm kind of a. I'm kind of a lame science writer in that I used to turn in stories with there'd be a lot of description and a lot of, you know, characters and dialogue. And then I'd have a paragraph where I'd just go, science TK. And that would be the last thing I'd stick in. And invariably, uh, depending on which editor I had, they'd just get exasperated and uh, write the science section <laughs> themselves. So I'm, I'm, I'm science light. I'm really not, uh, not one of the big boys, I'm afraid.
1: How did this book, Stiff, come into being?
0: <clears throat> Stiff actually grew out of my salon column I covered health medicine the human body uh, for their section health and body Uh, and I ended up one day sitting on an airplane with a man who worked in the crash test dummy business and he was talking about how in the early days of crash test dummies in order to calibrate them they needed to take cadavers and explore what the limits of the human body were to being say hit in the head with a windshield, or hit in the chest with a steering wheel, because the the crash test dummies would just tell you how much force the crash was unleashing, but it wouldn't tell without knowing what does that force do to a human body. It was meaningless information. Anyway, I was just found this fascinating. I didn't know that cadavers had these sort of extracurricular activities, and uh, it kind of that was one column I did. I did another column uh, that had to do with. Um, it was a Thanksgiving column. It was about some research that had been done on how much the stomach could hold before it bursts. Because I used to think at every Thanksgiving, what can I keep going? Is there some point where my stomach will explode? And in fact, the cadavers were used uh, at some point in the 1800s. There was a French and a German study. So that was another column. Well, and, you
1: have to tell us.
0: Uh, uh, 4,000 cc's, four quarts. Yeah. I think four.
1: Five, a gallon. A
0: gallon. Yeah, a gallon. Obviously, you can... Work your way up beyond that. I mean, there are, there are some serious eaters who I, uh, obviously have surpassed that. Your are Guinness World Record holders. Orson Welles, one famous <laughs> occasion, I think, ate eight, 18 hot dogs at Pink's <laughs> Hot Dog Stand. So anyway, it, it, that, uh, we were going to do a whole column called The Deadbeat on Salon, but the funding was cut. I was left with research that I'd done, talked to an agent. Psh, there you go. There's the book.
1: How did you select the post-mortem careers covered in this book?
0: Uh, I basically the the post mortem careers in this book are the most interesting and fascinating and bizarre that I came across, and, and really most of them. There's not much it, that's left out mm-hmm. that that you you can get up to as a cadaver. Uh, there, I mean, there's there, there really not much is left out. There are not that many things you can do as a dead guy.
1: Tell us a bit about the history of surgery. And the body thieves who might have supplied Victor Frankenstein.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Well, the um, in the early days of anatomy schools, the only cadavers available for dissection were uh, mur- convicted murderers. Part of the the penalty for murder uh, was that you were you were hung and then you were given over for dissection, and that was a, a huge deterrent because the populace at the time felt that it would ruin your chances of you know the. Resurrection of going, you know, ascension into heaven because you know you'd be all dripping on the floor <laughs> and missing parts, and that would uh, so that was uh, um, quite a deterrent. So consequently, uh, because there were so few uh, bodies available for the, all these anatomy schools in England and Ireland, Scotland, and eventually in the U.S., uh, there was this whole um, underclass of uh, thugs grew up that w- who would go out to cemeteries, uh, case the cemetery by day, see that there'd been a funeral, come back at night, dig up a fresh grave, take the body out, put all the dirt, the coffin back in, and take it over to the anatomy schools and sell it. And it was actually quite a uh, decent living uh, at the time. And, uh, that, I mean, the the anatomy instructors weren't thrilled about this, but they had no choice. So it was kind of, uh, if they wanted to keep doing... Uh, offering anatomy courses and dissection. They, that was really the only way they could get bodies.
1: Uh, one of the instructors actually went to a little more trouble to get his bodies, didn't he?
0: Uh, there w- well, there was uh, uh, an instructor named Knox who uh, had a couple of body snatchers, Burke and Hare. Burke and Hare, I think, just out of sheer laziness, decided, you know what, why dig them up when you can just kill them? <laughs> and they ran a boarding house... One of them had a boarding house, sort of a flop house, and drunks would come in and pass out. And they uh, developed this method where one of them would put a pillow over the guy's face and the other would lie on his chest so he couldn't breathe and it was called Birking, came to be known as Birking. And they uh, killed about 15, 16 people and uh, sold them. Is that what you were referring to? Yes, yes. yes.
1: Tell us about the experiments that were made to determine the weight of the human soul.
0: Ah, yes that was a dr mcdougall who in 1907 and I actually tracked down the uh, the journal article that he wrote about this he had a bed that had a scale it was incorporated into it a very sensitive scale sensitive for the time and he would install dying patients on the scale and he had i guess would be watching constantly to to uh, i guess he must have had a stethoscope to one ear and then an eye on the on the scale. And the moment they died, he looked to see if the needle ticked down at all, uh, which would indicate something had disappeared when they died. And uh, he determined it was the three quarters of an ounce change and that that was the soul leaving the body. And of course, he was roundly criticized. There was a debate that went on for months after that in that particular journal, Uh, but he stood, stood by his, uh, his conclusions.
1: Stiff addresses a lot of misconceptions about the process of decay. The old saying recommending that one live fast, die young, and leave a beautiful corpse kind of misses the point, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, there's really no point leaving a beautiful corpse because presently it's going to be not beautiful. Uh, there really isn't. Uh, there really isn't any way to remain attractive and youthful and. <laughs> In death. But Lord knows people have tried. Um, and in fact, in the old days of embalming, the undertakers would would claim that their technique would um, preserve you, you know, in eternal comeliness. And they would actually have best preserved body contests among themselves to try and figure out, you know, what's the best formulation so that the, the person keeps, yet doesn't pickle or mummify <laughs> And uh, they would, you know, publish photographs in their in their journals of the uh, of the winner the winner, and then give the formulation. So uh, they used to make claims; they're not allowed to now. Uh, the Government forbids that.
1: Tell us a bit about the challenges that people who wish to use human cadavers face in obtaining a cadaver, the postmortem paperwork.
0: Um, you need to be a credentialed academic or researcher or. Surgeon, medical. I mean, you, you need to. You need to have a legitimate reason to be messing around with a cadaver. Um, you cannot, for example. I got a call a couple of weeks ago from a documentary maker who wanted to know whether I thought he could get a cadaver. He was doing a uh, a show on um, human massacre, uh, uh, human. Sacrifice. He was talking about the Aztecs and saying they killed 20,000 in four days. I've worked out that that's three to four per minute. I don't think you could get the hearts out that quickly. I'm wondering if I can get a cadaver and get a surgeon to take an obsidian blade and make an incision and pull the heart out and see how quickly he can do it so that we can verify that, in fact, you could do this three or four times in a minute. Do you think I could get a cadaver? (laughs) And Where? And I said, "Well, uh, first of all, you you, you need a, a legitimate PhD researcher, and who is you know, doing a you know, like a history thesis or something. And even then, probably not. But as a film documentary filmmaker working on a Discovery Channel <laughs> documentary, no, you are not going to get a cadaver and rip its heart out. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, so it, you really have to prove that you have um, a legitimate reason, and that it's." Uh, Something, um, I think. Similarly, with animal research, that Mm -hmm. it it can't have been done before. You can't be, you know, duplicating something that's already known. You, um, you really have to make your case that you can't do your work without a human cadaver.
1: Once you've got your case, your little paper written up, where do you go?
0: Um, Human uh, cadavers come from. when you donate yourself as, uh, to research, you fill out a willed body form at a, for a particular university, uh, a medical oh. school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you die, they come and pick you up and take you to the university. And then the willed body program coordinator looks at his list of who needs what. Um, about 70-80% of them go to anatomy labs for dissection. And the remaining ones are parceled out according to who's got what project and what need So, if you were a guy uh, working in an automotive safety impact lab and you needed a cadaver, you would let them know, and eventually they call you up and say, "Well, we've got somebody here. Would you like to come look?" Um, Because oh, you get to shop. You do get to shop. You get to shop around actually, uh, because sometimes the cadaver may be too old. Um, Like in an automotive impact test, you know, if the bones are very brittle. Um, it's not going to be very representative. The average person in an accident is pretty young. You mm-hmm. know, eighteen-year-old male is probably the average age of a head-on car collision. Uh, so, an eighty-year-old guy is not going to be a, very representative. So, yeah, uh, you know, they yes, you can, you can, yay or nay, the guy on the slab.
1: Now, you can o- so you can only leave your body to a university. I mean, couldn't I? What if I wanted to leave my body to the Discovery Channel to have a, my heart ripped? Oh, out?
0: they'd love you. <laughs> <laughs> they would love you. I suppose if you put it in your will. I mean, there was a guy who, in his will, said, I want my... He was an actor. He said, I want my skull to be Yorick in our theater, our Shakespeare theater troupe. And my understanding is that they had that done. Um, I don't know where. I mean, there are facilities that clean bones for museums, and perhaps he uh, he got one of them to do it. Hopefully they didn't, you know, do it at home. <clears throat> but... Um, Go
1: ahead. Okay. <laughs> death is a little more complicated than it used to be. It's a very difficult subject. Could you talk about brain death and organ donation and, quote, true death? Uh,
0: yes. Um, brain death uh, is the legal and accepted definition of death in our Society in this country. Uh, so you can be if you're in an accident and you're whacked very hard in the head and your de- your your brain is no longer functioning, your brain dead. Um, yet you're on, if you're put on a respirator, your organs can keep going. you 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 can keep the heart and the organs functioning for a matter of time until um, for transplantation. So you have what's uh, you end up with this entity known as a beating heart cadaver and i actually spent some time in an operating room with a beating heart cadaver whose organs were being taken out for transplantation Uh, there was a guy who came for the heart someone else came for the liver and kidneys and this is a very strange thing to see because this uh individual uh is dead and yet you see the heart i mean literally because the body you know the body cavity has been opened up you see this heart beating and you see you know and the flesh is you know warm to the touch and the everything is you know working and functioning and yet this person is dead and it's a very odd uh especially in a culture that for centuries has thought you know the, of the self as the heart you know every love song is about you know my heart and you say you you know you you put your hand on your heart when you think of yourself and so that has uh, brain death kind of threw people for a loop for i think it took people a while to Adjust to that, and and so you do have families who say no to organ transplantation. I think because they're uncomfortable with the thought that they may, uh, in sanctioning the removal of the heart, the beating heart, actually themselves be committing the final act of, I mean, in a sense, murdering the person, even though they're not, because the person is brain dead. It's you know I think death is a is a it's a continuum more than an exact point. Um, and I talked to heart transplant surgeons who said. Um, i don 't know that you can say somebody brain dead is dead in the final final sense, but the in between state uh, of being brain dead is not something anyone would want i mean you are they 're pretty certain there 's nothing
1: going on there When was the legal precedent for legal and scientific precedent for brain death established
0: uh, in the, in the '60s there was a uh, committee report that was published. Um, in the, uh, in the journal of, uh, I don't know exactly, I don't, I'd have to look in the book for exactly, uh, I think it was the JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association. Um, uh, and it was right around the time of heart transplant, uh, when heart transplantation was first happening. In fact, there were some coroner's offices who were saying, if you take that heart out, you know, I will, uh, I will initiate murder charges um because this, it, the heart is beating you know, the the person is alive and before the um the concept of brain death became accepted these it was the trans, heart transplantation was uh had had some difficulty being accepted
1: now as a fan of bad horror movies i insist that you tell us a bit about the head transplants
0: ah yes the head transplants um <clears throat> there was a, a neurosurgeon dr uh, robert White, who uh, became fascinated with the possibility that you could uh, keep a brain alive outside of a body. And uh, so he actually um, was able to do this. He would, he, he would take, because if you have a brain, as long as it has a blood supply, this brain will continue to function as a brain.
1: A brain in a bell jar?
0: A brain in a bell, yeah. The, actually, Actually, wow. even... even even better than that, he took brains and he would like stitch them into. This was, he was doing this with with dogs uh, initially, dogs and monkeys, and he would take a, a brain and like stitch it into an abdomen or a thigh. You know, attach the the arteries so that this brain. You could just imagine if you were this dog. I mean, you couldn't see anything, but you'd know something was up. <laughs> <laughs> you would I mean, imagine what it would be like just to be a brain inside someone else's. Uh, body cavity. <laughs> anyway, so th- that was his, and then he, he that was his, his first, uh, the first step. And then he decided, you know, what, well, what if you could, could you keep a whole head by perfusing it with blood? If you keep a, a actual head of a monkey, uh, could you, if, you, it, if you keep it alive outside, off of a body, why not stitch it onto another body and then literally transplant a head from one body to another? And he succeeded in doing this. And you may be saying, "Why? <laughs> Why would you spend all this time trying to transplant one monkey's head onto the body of another?" And his feeling was that, and, and this is actually, you know, there is some logic to this: that if you had a, a, an individual whose body was failing, whose body, who had um, something was failing in their body, what major organs were collapsing, and they were going to die, if you could take that head off and reattach the arteries to another body. You could then that per- extend that person's life. Obviously, he would be paralyzed from the neck down because you can't reattach the spinal cord. But you would have, as Dr. White called it, you know, you'd be a head on a pillow, but you would be alive. And he said he was saying you could continue to you could enjoy music, you could <laughs> s- you could watch films, you could you couldn't mm, talk, I think, because the you're breathing through a tube. Um, essentially, he compared it to Christopher Reeves. I'm sure Mr. Reeves would not. appreciate that but it is a similar i mean you know you'd be paralyzed from the from the neck down but your head would be functioning uh so there you go that's that's the story of the head transplants
1: well we have time for just another quick question what are what are you working on next how do you follow up post-death
0: aha well having spent so much time uh, with with dead bodies, I'm actually the the next book. I can't really say too much about it, but it has more to do with the with the soul. Oh, well. uh huh, uh huh. Science and the soul.
1: Science and the soul. It's
0: uh, more fun. More fun things in weird labs.
1: Oh, well, that sounds great. We've been talking with Mary Roach. Her new book is Stiff: The Curious Lives of Human Cadavers.